0: Addict Triathlon Podcast. We're brought to you every week by our sponsors Precision, Fuel and Hydration.com. Personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so you can perform at your best with 15% off your first order of electrolytes and carbohydrate fuel with the code OA22 at PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. Welcome to the show everybody. I'm your host Coach Rob Wilby and every week I bring you an episode of this podcast to help motivate and inspire you. This week I've got part one of our review of the year I've gone back through the archives of all of the episodes this year and I've selected some personal highlights of mine um, for all of the different episodes I've listened to I've gone back and thought what are some of the things it would be nice to go back and review so you might not have heard these episodes in full if you haven't great go back there's links in the show notes to listen to the episodes in full um, we've got a whole bunch of exciting stuff I have got firstly Matt bottrell talking about his role in the sub-7, sub-8 event this year. We've got Richard Murray talking about coming back from cardiac care to being at the Olympics we've got Jan Siberson talking about breaking the swim record at Kona we've got Andy Blow talking about the effects of caffeine and how it can help improve your performance we've got young Dan Dixon from way back when before he was even at the Commonwealth Games which which was awesome to have him on so early so we've got him talking about the start of his career from way back in the start of this year and we've also got Ironman CEO Andrew Messick talking about the future plans for Ironman and where they see the uh, the race is going in the upcoming years so i really hope that you enjoy this episode um if you do it'd be absolutely wonderful if you could if you could give us a like if you could give us a follow over on youtube we're going to be we're going to be running a competition we've got some team oxygen addict kits that we're going to give away so what we're going to do is for all the people who like and subscribe to our youtube channel all we want you to do is then send us either a tweet on Twitter or a message on Instagram saying, I've followed the Oxygen Addict podcast on YouTube. If you do that, we'll just enter you into a competition to win, um, win some of our Team Oxygen Addict kit, which, yeah, everyone's a winner. Happy days at Christmas. But listen, I hope you enjoy this. Today, as I'm putting this episode out, is actually the solstice. It's a great time of year to sit back and reflect on what's been great during the year, what has worked really well for you, what you're proud of, what you want to do differently next year. So it's been a really nice process for me to sit back and go back through some of our episodes from this year and and bring you some of the, the very highlights. We will be continuing into the new year to bring you all these episodes. We're going to be expanding out away from just primarily triathlon and Ironman. We're going to be moving into all manner of endurance sports. We're going to be looking at doing more interviews with ultra runners, with gravel bike riders, with pure cyclists, pure runners, swimmers, swim runners. Hopefully, it's going to be stuff that will help motivate and inspire you for your training. But also, very aware from the athletes I talk to, people are looking around and thinking, well, you know, I've done three, four, five years of triathlon. And I'm looking to do something slightly different. So our interview is coming up. We're still primarily always going to be, I think, a, a triathlon, and Ironman at its heart. But all of the other endurance adventures are out there around the world for us to go to are just as exciting and important. And I think hopefully we can be part of your journey going forwards onto those as well. If that is where you're headed. So without further ado, we're going to go to our first part of the interview. We've got Matt Botterl here talking about his role helping Christian Blumenfeld win the sub 7 event this summer.
1: But for me as a project, yeah, it was it started back in October, yeah, you know, like 2021. And then it's been like a seven-month journey from that point, and then to see it all come together with the amount of work that we put into it was just yeah unbelievable. You know, I was—I'm not going to lie—I uh, was almost—I was crying at the finish of it. You know, like I was that emotional because we just worked so hard together as a team. You know, like we just spent like two weeks together previous to the effort. We'd done another training camp previous to that. So you know, like the people that we were surrounded by, uh, it was phenomenal. Really, it's the best, by far, the best thing I've ever done. And as a team effort, yeah, I don't think ever, anything will ever compare to it. Really, really, yeah, it was phenomenal.
0: Was that was that the feeling amongst the guys in the team as well? Did they did they get that same sense of buzz out of it? Because I imagine, I mean, I know you talked last time getting a group of guys together who are usually individuals and turning them into a team to ride for someone else. There's some challenges there, right?
1: Yeah, there were plenty of challenges initially. You know, like, we went through a few riders to get the team that we wanted. But yeah, everybody was the same. Like, there was myself and Kyle Gordon, and we were, like, literally, like, crying like babies. You know what I mean? Uh, but it's just, like, we just built up, like, this friendship, and uh, and we we're just so accountable to one another. And it's even now we've got, like, this group... And we—it's just like nonstop, stop you know, like we're having banter, uh, you know. Like I couldn't honestly—I couldn't have picked any better guys than I did for this attempt. And I really hope that you know, there's so much more things that I would love to do with these guys in the future. You know, like I've known—I've known all the guys like personally, but there's some friendships that are developed now that you know they'll last forever, really.
0: Is there is there anything else on the horizon like this in the future, do you think? Is there anything
1: Uh you know, like I think like the first thing that they said to me, do you want to come back like next year? Uh, <laughs> remember that'll happen. Uh I think everyone had had a few drinks by that point. But apparently that you know there is talk and there is rumour that another attempt, I don't think it'd be sub seven, but something along like this team event could could happen. And it would be uh you know like it would be so exciting to see because unless you were there or you're part of that you know the builder for that team it's it's so special do you know what I mean but to do it I'm not going to lie like you just can't turn up and do this type of thing you know it did look easy but it kind of takes a lot of practice uh to make it all come together realistically
0: Yeah. Well, anyone who's ever tried to ride in even like a basic pace line with the mates know how hard it is to get back on when you're going fast, but to put some kind of like numbers on what you guys did, we went out to this French training camp and we were whizzing down this hill and I was riding next to one of the ladies and she was going, I don't want to go any faster than this. This is as fast as I feel comfortable going. And I looked down and we were doing 52 kilometers an hour and it was plenty fast enough for me as well. And I looked over and said, do you know we're about 3K an hour short of how fast they're going to have to go in this sub-7 thing? And she went, there's no way. Like, how can anybody go that fast on a bike? So it's worth pointing out to people, it's, it's as fast as you get to going down a long hill on a bike if you're not making a real massive effort to absolutely leg it as hard as you can. That's the kind of speed you top out at. So to ride at yeah. that speed on the flat, unreal.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of like, for me, that's like the bit that I'm addicted to. It's kind of been a while that, you know, like, like riding at those speeds, it just feels phenomenal. You know, like when you make that connection with the yeah. bike and uh, yeah, it is like, you know, like on the, you know, the, the tailwind section, you're in like f- probably like 56 to 58 kilometers an hour. Then you've got like the Edwin section and yeah, it's down at like, you know, anywhere between like 15, 54 K an hour. Uh, but yeah, it is. It's fast. It feels phenomenal, qu- phenomenally quick. And obviously for us, like we have reached, what was it, uh, 53k an hour, the team quarters, uh, and they've averaged like 55, you know, like, yeah, it puts it into perspective. So, uh, but it was always making a calculation, at, you know, that, uh, you know, like I was always saying, you know, like previous to the event, this is swim bike run. It's not just about like riding like the fastest bike. Obviously that that set everything up for the record. But then to see you know like Christian and Joe run those times it's yeah. phenomenal, really. Uh, and you know, like just imagine for me, like I, I was playing like the sweeper role, and I was averaging like two hundred and eighty watts. That that was like my average for the for the day. That's really, and with my aerodynamic drag, that's good enough to, you know, like I'd be pretty confident that I would come off first pack in Kona, if not ride one of the fastest bike splits there. So you can imagine, like, the effort that Christian and uh, yeah, yeah, and Joe made, phenomenal. Like, Joe, mm. you know, he explained that he rode above his Ironman power, which is, like, remarkable. My question in that scenario would be, okay, that's great, Joe. If the team had slowed it down, could you have won it? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah,
0: interesting. So, uh,
1: but, and that's what you've always, you know, like, it was the same for us when we got caught on the bike. like. You know, yeah, it was my job to be like the the captain of the team. Uh, And I had to make the call, do we chase or do we stay at the pace that we're riding at? And obviously I made the call that, you know, like we had like race radio. We were saying like, let's make, uh, yeah, let's stay at the pace that we want to ride because it's going to be plenty fast enough.
0: Yeah. Now, when we spoke beforehand, you, you gave us a little hint of how fast you thought you were going to go. And I think I remember you talking about three, I think you said 340 and I got the impression you were maybe thinking you'd go a bit faster than that. Did it like after the event, did it surprise you how fast you went or was it a case of like you, you kind of did know how fast you were going to go and yeah. you were trying to keep the, a bit of gamesmanship for yeah. the other team?
1: Yeah, you, you're always trying to play, like, games with the other team, realistically, aren't you? We knew that we were going to go, like, 3.30. We were riding that in training. So, you know, like, we were aiming for 3.27, and obviously, you know, like, we ended up with, like, 3.23. And it was faster than we thought it was going to be, realistically. Okay. If you had told me that the other team were going to ride, like, 3.16, I'd have been like, no way. You know, and I think that they were the same. I'd say that we were all probably, like, probably, like, four minutes faster than we we expect it to be realistically but i think like the weather played into our hands really it was like really warm uh there wasn't much wind so it was yeah the perfect day for it
0: well let's rewind a little bit and talk about the man christian because what what a what a year he's having Yeah, he can't <laughs> it, stop winning, can he? <laughs> it, is, it is phenomenal, isn't it? Firstly, to take down Alex Yee in the Olympics, right? Which it's one of these things like on paper, shouldn't have happened, but it did. He's such a fierce competitor. Then you've got his performance at Cozumel. Then you've got this performance. It's just, is there anything the guy can't do?
1: Yeah, I just think like, uh, he just brings such a vibe. Oh, He's just so confident, but not arrogant with it. I've never met anybody that's just so confident in their ability and they can deliver that performance. They'll talk about it. And they're not big-headed in the slightest, but he just got like this inner belief. And I, I used to have this a lot. I always, uh, I laughed to him. I said, I've never had the talent that you had, but I always, you know, like mentally, like how he thinks and how I think, are very much like along the same lines. And that's what, he's just like, he just knows that he's trained harder than anybody else. They've looked at every little bit of detail. So it's kind of like, ultimately, if you're on the start line with him, if you beat him, then you've done, you know, like you, you've made everything connect. Because he, I, I do believe that, you know, like as a team, they know that they, there's no stone unturned. Do you know what I mean? They've looked at every little bit of detail. And it, it's the same with Olaf, really. He just brings like this vibe that, it's, it, yeah, it, it I think if he's confident in what you're doing and, you know, like if you're one of their partners, then you just make this special connection. It's like, it's like, I've never, I've never quite felt that before with, you know, like with all the stuff, things that I've done as a, as a, as a unit, it's phenomenal just, and it make you feel really special in what they're doing. If that makes sense. Like we, you know, like, yeah, that, that connection that we made with the team and it's like, once we got Christian off the, you know, off the bike, we needed it turn off and it's down. We, you know, we all knew that we were going to win it. Do you know what I mean? And I've never really felt that. Like, you're always like a bit like, oh, will it happen? Won't it happen? And then, you know, like you've got Olaf at this. You know how he's like, you always see him like, oh, Christian. He's like, <laughs> he's quite a big guy. He's like chucking all the guys up in the air, giving them like bear hooks and everything. So He's so, like Olaf and Christian, you know, they've got a lot of passion for the sport and, you know, they are pushing, they're just taking it to that next level realistically, which is great to see, you know, like for somebody like myself that loves like this level of performance, I do love what they're doing, I think it's it's great
0: amazing what's your what's your impression of Christian as a personality like to hang out with and talk to and get on with? what was your impression of him like that
1: oh, I such a laugh, yeah, we had such a good time with him, like obviously like when you first meet anybody uh they, they can be always quiet, but as you get to know somebody, he's just one of the lads. do you know what I mean he, he like cracks some really funny jokes he's serious when you need to be serious, but he's just like uh he just loves banter. And the, be, the, best, <laughs> the best part that we had, uh, we went to Amsterdam and then all literally everybody's flight got, gets cancelled. And then I'm like, well, Christian, we really need to get you to Germany. Uh, and it was like a 500-mile drive. So I'm saying, look, I think that you should come with us because there's no guarantee that where the flights are, that you, uh, you're going to make it, you know, like even tomorrow. So he agreed to come with us. And uh, it was so funny. We stopped. We had like three stops. And at every stop that we had, he had like a, a sausage and a bun. And I come. what are you doing? I think you mentioned meant to be this pro athlete. He goes, when you're in Germany, you live like a German. He says, no matter which country you go to, you have to take in, you know, like their culture. <laughs> so it was really funny to see him just having like, like this, yeah, this sausage and uh, <laughs> like, like bun. So he, yeah. I,
0: I, yeah. So, so yeah, not only has he done this amazing performance, but he's done it essentially fueled on Ginsters pasties and motorway service station yeah. food. That's just
1: ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, to some point, and I do, you know, like I think the give gives us, you know, like he's not, you know, he's not bothered what he eats, but he is careful what he eats. But he's kind of, uh, he just, you know, like he, that's what I do love about triathlon. Like generally, you no know, matter who you meet, you don't like. Like the personalities, everybody just kind of, I don't know, they just got this really nice personality around him, And I just say that he's no different, you know, like what you see is what you get. So, uh, yeah, it was a pleasure to hang around with him. You know, I think we all loved it, really. I think he actually enjoyed having the company of the guys around him as well. You know, like, you know, I'm sure that he learned a lot through the whole experience as well.
0: Next up, we've got Richard Murray talking about his journey of coming back from cardiac care after some very serious heart problems to try and make the start line of the Olympics. Um, Yeah,
2: it was eventually in the Olympics came around the the following year and kind of we realized, okay, Olympics was now the following year. Cool. It's still on, you know, I'm not going to be too old. I'll be 32. That should be, should still be in some pretty good shape then as well. And, uh, um before before i knew it uh i started to get heart heart problems in january uh we went out for training um i was noticing my heart rate was kind of a few days leading up to it i was driving in the car and i kind of had this like like feeling you're in an elevator that's dropping really fast while i was driving in the car i thought this feels odd uh and i didn't think too much of it and i thought no it's no big deal um Kept on training, everything kind of seemed fine. My resting heart rate, my recovery heart rate or training heart rate was kind of in the 140s kind of when I was going easy, which I thought was kind of unusual. Normally I'm 120, 115, 110, kind of when I'm really fit. So it was about 20 beats up and I thought, mm, that's kind of odd. Um, we I went and actually the day before I actually got AFib for the first time, I went in to see the doctor and I just said, no, maybe we can do an ECG just to check things out for the season and whatnot. He checked it out and he said, yeah, you've got a weird heart, uh, but it's an athlete's heart. So I've got like massive peaks to do with, a uh, to do with uh, the highs and lows. And he said, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's quite normal for a top athlete because you obviously your volume pumps massively and, and that's seen in the athlete's heart. So he said, no big deal. Um, and he, he did mention though, he said that he had seen some things in there that weren't the best, but he didn't think too much of it. Um, and literally the next day we were swimming and in my goggles, I have those form swim goggles where uh, I've kind of got a Bluetooth sensor in. Uh, and we were warming up and I saw my heart rate, something felt, I felt like I was having like a spasm in my chest, like a muscle was just getting a spasm. And I thought that feels odd. Maybe it's just my tight or whatever. Uh, and I was looking and I checked and I thought, gee, my heart rate's like 160 the whole time while I was warming up in the swim. And I thought, that doesn't look right. Uh, and I stopped and adjusted sensor. And then eventually I looked again. And I said, it just stayed. And I was on the side of the pool for like five or eight minutes and just stayed at 160. And I thought, yeah, it does not look right. Yeah. Um, and I jumped out the pool and I was like gasping a little bit. And I felt like I was still exercising kind of an immediate intensity, uh, but I wasn't doing anything. And I was kind of thinking, this, is, this feels something's not right. Um, and I was literally teared up. I almost started crying. And I do not know what was wrong with me. What on earth is wrong with me? Um, and I called my folks and them and Rachel actually had to drive me to my parents' place. We were literally two kilometers down the road. Um, And we also had a swimming pool. There was absolutely nobody else. It was just Rachel and I. And there was so it was a swimming pool for the school. So there was just the two of us there. There was no one
0: else. Oh wow! Um, so it's so really it was, like the yeah the was, triangle of disaster, isn't it? Nobody it else was there. Just no, no one yeah. else
2: there. Just the two of us. And then I told Rachel she had to drive, and she had barely driven in South Africa for um, yeah almost ever. Um, So she she got in my car, which is like an old Audi from the probably like twenty or fifteen years ago. And we drove to my parents' place. Um, and, yeah, we went there and they checked out an oximeter. So they put the oximeter on my finger, pretty much one of those oximeters which just shows your heart rhythm. And we could actually see there was beat beats and we're actually, it would flatline for like a second or two um, with nothing. And then I would have like a whole bunch of beats and it would flatline again. And I thought, like, geez, that looks like a problem. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, I think it was, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what to think of it, but uh, it was, it was quite scary. my parents luckily knew a cardiologist in, in Cape town uh, and they picked the phone up and gave him a call. Uh, we went straight to the doctor and uh, he went and he did a, a ECG test with me. And uh, he literally saw BDDS, yeah, you have AFib um, and you need to get that fixed uh, like ASAP. Um, and so my parents then called another, the cardiologist and he said, well, I need to go and see this doctor. One of the top cardiologists, um, he'll set up an organ organized meeting for me. We went down there and the doctor literally, when we sat down, he told me, okay, you can pretty much stop sports, you know, go get a real job is what the, what the the cardiologist literally told me, just stop what you're, we actually got it recorded. He literally said, just stop what you're doing and go get a normal job. Wow. I was literally like, I just thought, I can't can't believe I've just heard that. Yeah. Um, And then we said, is there not things you can do in that thing? He says, yeah, you can do this medication, that, but chance you'll be coming back is pretty much nothing. Um, Wow. So mentally that was thinking going from being, okay, well, this is what I do. This is my life. And uh, now my life has been kind of, or my career and my love and passion has been taken away. Um, what do I do now? And uh, Rachel, literally, it was the day before we were supposed to travel to Namibia, so we were going on altitude camp trip the next day. Um, and I said, "Well, I can't travel if I have a heart problem. I don't think that's very smart." <laughs> um, but, <laughs> and so Rachel actually stayed there with me for the next few days. We got medication, um, which managed to within literally a day brought my heart rhythm back into normal rhythm. But then after that, you were kind of, you know, I was kind of freaking out. It's, uh, it's like, well, my heart has an issue. Um, and you know, what's going to happen next, you know, will I be able to ever race again? Is this the end? And it almost took about, I think two months or so. Um, things kind of stabilized and I actually ended up going to the the camp in Namibia about a week later. Um, uh, Rachel, she traveled there a week later and then I spent uh, a little bit more time and then I thought, okay, no, I'm all right. Everything's okay. I'll go to Namibia. I went there, did a bit of training with them as well uh, at the camp. Uh, and within like about a week and a half, it happened again, literally in Namibia. I had like an, another episode of AFib there as well. Um, and it was quite another scary thing. Luckily I had medication there as well with me. So I literally took some uh, tablet you can take immediately. That brings your heart back into rhythm. Uh, I took it within a few hours. It was back, but then I thought, no, I need to get this fixed. If this continues like this, then, then uh, you know, I may as well, I may as well quit because, I was literally just doing basic training. I did literally a tiny bit of intensity and it would come back again. Yeah. And so I had to get it fixed and I had the option then I had to choose whether I did it in South Africa, got the ablation done. So obviously I got an ablation done um, where it it sounds, when you tell people it's heart surgery, it's not really heart surgery. Well, to a degree it is heart surgery, but um, people think that you literally get cut open like your chest and they'll like take, you know, remove the rib and kind of get everything and, and start working on your heart. But um it's crazy They literally make a tiny incision kind of by your hip they go up with these tiny little um little rods they go up through a vein kind of in your hip straight all the way up into your heart from your hip wow and they they'll go in um actually into the parts of your heart and almost freeze the nodes inside your heart that's sending the signals incorrectly to actually put your heart out of rhythm uh and actually need to push through from the one side of the heart actually into the other so they actually make a hole through the through inside your heart to the other side where they actually freeze. either freeze there's two options they freeze they do cryo um or they do uh kind of uh where they burn little parts of the quarter, they kind of cauterized parts inside um and that then obviously then stops the signals getting sent wrong and putting your heart out um and so yeah we went eventually i got that done then in uh june and the olympics was coming around so I had to uh, kind of get things done and, and it was crazy because i was thinking why am i trying to get things done so quickly right before the olympics but i, I thought if i recover in time and i'm always a believer of things can always happen you know you, you know you, you can't put yourself out until until it's over um and i was still busy organizing things with olympics like trying to get things organized and why am i doing this it's like it's, it just seems so counterintuitive to being trying to push for getting a time to an ablation there yeah, is also the lead time between things usually takes months. So it was, it was, the pressure was on and,
0: you know, How, I, how long did you have between, between the heart surgery and the
2: Olympics? About six weeks or eight, I think it was eight
0: weeks. So he had, he had heart surgery eight weeks before the Olympic games. Yeah. That wow. was the. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I tell you what I, it it would be easy to sit here and say, well, you know, do you know what, man? That's just not going to happen. But I, I've got so much respect for your attitude of, well, you just don't know what's going to happen. Let's let's plan like it's like it's going to go ahead, like we're going to get to go and do it. You never know. I, I love that about you. That's absolutely brilliant.
2: Uh, it was, I mean, I think you've always got to look on, on the line side in some degree because there's always um, things that don't go your way. And there's always... Uh, the, the interesting thing, well, not the interesting thing. Rachel's um, Rachel's mother passed away about, I think it was t- just over two years ago. Oh, um, sorry. And, as well, and it was literally a year to the date almost that r- we heard the news from Rachel that Rachel's mom had um, uh, she had a, she had a tumor, and um, we uh, I got the news then I had a heart problem literally uh, a, a year from the date, and Rachel's mother was actually specialised in kind of hearts as well. Um, which is very, very. I'm not sure the, how that how that actually ended up happening, but it was very, very weird. And um, I think you know, going to do that. I mean, at part of the Olympics, I knew the chance of me going there to be part of the main event was there was pretty much the Olympic distance race. I knew I would have no chance. I wouldn't have time to be fit enough. I wouldn't recover enough. Also, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't say I'm not say stupid enough to push myself inside out for two hours just after having heart surgery it would just be complete madness. Um, so my plan was to go and be part of the Olympics as the relay, because we only had four athletes. And if I didn't go, there would be zero relay. So I was going anyway, and, um, I couldn't get removed from the main start list. So everyone saw me on the main start list. Um, and I had no intention of competing, but I could only be removed once the main event had actually taken place or the day before I could only be removed. So a lot of the things that came up of, I decided to pull out last moment, but. I had no intention to actually compete. And I don't think a lot of people know that, but yeah. um, You know, I'm, I'm, I'm wild, but I'm not, you know, reckless. (laughs) And um, I think the Rachel was going as well. So, and uh, I was connecting with a Dutch team. So I traveled there with a Dutch national team as well to a training camp, which was quite weird. Me being a South African, having complete casual clothing, training with or traveling with a Dutch national team. And they had like a, they had a lounge in Skippole as well, where all the Olympic athletes could go. And I was just rocking there. I bought a T-shirt from Lidl that I just rocked in through the lounge and everything that had Tokyo on. And I was just winging my way through the airport, <laughs> and it was, it was pretty funny. But it was, uh, I really find you know I enjoy being part of it, and, and the Dutchers have really helped me over the past few years. So it's um, uh, kind of one of the massive reasons as well why I decided to change nationalities as well. Um, at the yeah. start of the well, at the end of last year and, and the last few years kind of being in this environment so much, uh, having two Dutch coaches training with here, living in the Netherlands. um, uh, That was kind of the the big idea behind it. Um, And yeah, so going to the Olympics, then obviously uh, I managed to get myself able to exercise and I was at about probably 70, 85%. So I was exercising to the point that I wasn't going to get AFib uh, attack and I had to keep myself as fit as I could without having a heart attack or heart uh, issue type thing before I had my ablation done. It was, it was quite quite weird trying to keep myself that fit, and I thought, well, if I take two or three weeks off and I'm actually at a great level, maybe when I start training again, um, you know, I'll still have pretty good fitness, or I won't be at the bottom, and to try and pull off being in a relay. Um, the idea then was just to, if I hadn't gone to to the Olympics, we would have had zero relay, and I'm quite a patriotic human being, so for me that would have been a big loss. So I thought, well, for the country and for those things, it's very important for me to go, um, and. Little that I know when I got to the Olympics that uh, Henry Henry Schuman already had an injury which no one knew about, um, and the federation and them hadn't told any of the athletes or anything like that. And so we got there and and I uh, saw Henry at taping on his ankle and everything. And I was like, "Are you okay?" and stuff. And he said he, um, he said no, things are fine and stuff. And I think he know he had an injury for a while um, and yeah. was kind of nursing it uh, nursing it through type of thing as well. And was um, obviously mentally that must be very tough too. Um, and so then I kind of looked and then I heard them speaking and I kind of said, no, perhaps if Henry doesn't uh, manage to come, if he has an issue with the main race or he, something's wrong and he has an injury, then we won't have a team relay. So I knew that the first day I got to the Olympics, the chance of me doing the relay was probably zero as well. So I got there thinking, how do I not freak out now after I like, had heart surgery, pushed myself through to get there. Now I got there and there's probably going to be no chance of me competing. I said, like, psychologically, that was... I was like in the village thinking, what am I doing here? Like I must be the only athlete that's come here to just hang around and, and and look after Rachel because I ended up looking after Rachel too, because I thought, well, for my own interest, you know, for her, she ended up actually going on a training camp in France the same week that I had my heart surgery here in the Netherlands. So Rachel like went to France on the training camp and she was doing a hard swim session there and she couldn't do the hard swim session because she was trying to figure out whether i had come out of surgery and everything was fine and here in the Netherlands.
0: Um, so it was pretty
2: crazy. Like, I mean, it's a hard,
0: been a hard time for you. you know, isn't it? It,
2: it was pretty tricky. And I mean, obviously I want Rachel to do the best that she can and to get the furthest that she can in life too. So it was a pretty tricky, tricky, uh, thing to do. And, and, and she went over there and she had an amazing Olympic. She kind of had, I think that probably the performance of a career. She outran some people that she's never outrun before. Um, she ran from the back. I don't think she could have done any better. It was going to be a breakaway race for the girls, pretty much either way and it kind of went out was going to go, you know, and yeah, um, she came forth from that. So she can, you know, can definitely go away being happy with that. And um, I ended up chilling in the village, going out hunting pins. So I got bored. So I ended up like trying to see if I could collect every pin there was possible in the Olympic village. I think I ended up getting about 180 countries or something out of 200 and I think there's
0: 220 countries
2: or something, 200 countries. What are the
0: pins? Are they little So things? Like, it's
2: literally like the trade. It's literally the money or the currency within the Olympic village.
0: Right. Okay.
2: So whoever has the most pins, it's like you're the godfather then of the Olympic village. <laughs> thought, well. If I'm here, I may as well be ridiculous. So, what I ended up doing, I could actually show you a picture of it because I think, I don't think I up posted, but you have these like name cards that you've got to travel with you everywhere and you end up like sticking the pins on. Eventually, I had to get like two lanyards because these things were like completely chockered, full of um, these pins from different countries. Eventually, I was ending up messaging people trying to try and find somebody from Seychelles or from which some of these countries that you had never even heard of. So, ended up getting some good. Um, some good lessons about countries and things around the world, which was quite cool and meeting some people. And I didn't get COVID there as well, which was quite impressive because I met about 200 different people or 400 different people. Um, which is quite good I thought, <laughs> this is probably like the COVID competition. <laughs> the
0: yeah, Olympic man, stone. you, you could end up, you could have ended up being the super spreader of the Tokyo Olympics, Rich. I
2: could have, I, I could have, could <laughs> have, could have been part of, they should have not probably not allowed people to do, um, to do trading and stuff. And they were also, Professional traders there with all these massive things, actually standing there busy trying to like, because there's value. Some of them are actually worth quite a lot of money.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: Uh, one of the pins were almost worth a couple of hundred dollars. Um, wow, one okay. Of the, which I didn't know, but it was, I was just keeping myself entertained because I was there training for the sake of training.
0: Yeah. And going to the swimming pool. From, at what point did it, at what point did you, did you realize that the, the relay just wasn't going to happen?
2: So I think it was kind of three days, four days before. So I think Henry had in the main race, he had pulled out. He had, and he had, I think had fractured his ankle, um, during the main race. And then, uh, we literally got told, so we didn't have like a meeting or anything, or there was no coming together. People chatting was literally no Henry's Henry's flying back to South Africa because his ankles, he broke his ankle. Yeah and so so I said well does that mean that the relay is over he said no yeah, no no that means the relay is over we spoke with Olympic guys and then that was kind of the end of the story and then no one else spoke about anything else and then and they said within two days we, need, we had to now officially leave before the relay had actually happened yeah. um, because we weren't going to compete we had to leave so I, so I said like, so now we need to leave so I said well I'm doing nothing of the sort I'll just be chilling here and uh, if they wanted to port me <laughs> go ahead because I'm here collecting pins and <laughs> you can try and stop me <laughs> so that was literally the what had happened and and then i was thinking geez like this is yeah it was a very tricky scenario because i was like how could i not freak out because henry knew he, he couldn't really run without any agony and then we could have had a relay if he had just competed in the relay and not done the main event but yeah he chose then to do the main event instead and i was kind of like well that's kind of weird because yeah it was weird. And I was there trying to give it up to have the country racing. And, that, you know, I knew my capability. would. I would have been able to nurse our team through so that we competed, not that we actually, you know, not that I would have actually had that level of racing in me to actually push myself inside out. But we were just still able to compete and stand there for the country and everyone would be, That's kind of part of Olympics. Yeah. Well, that's how I find anyway.
0: But it must be. It must be so hard when you're at that level of going to the Olympics and wanting so much to take part in it. But at the same time, was let me ask you this: Was there a part of you that was relieved that you didn't have to race, that you wouldn't have to push yourself to the point of? Well, probably possible. I'd
2: actually some some people actually said that Henry probably did me a favour. Yeah, because he said, well. Were you ready to compete? I said, "Well, no, not really." So he said, "Well, maybe you did you a favor?" So I said, "Well, possibly, perhaps that was the way that it was meant to meant to happen." And then, uh, and then I decided to do my own Olympic triathlon in the village. So then I set up my own uh, triathlon in the village, and there was no water, and I had to swim in a fountain, which was probably broke some laws. But I mean, you know, you've got to you've got to do what you got to do. But uh, I ended up kind of swimming in a Uh, in a fountain and there were people taking pictures right by the Olympic rings where all the athletes took photos with I was kind of swam in the fountain um, and then I did a transition and did two bike laps cycling around and then ended up running on the track at the bottom
0: so um, so you got to do a a triathlon at the Olympics in the end yeah
2: it's on YouTube YouTube as well so if you want to go see the most ridiculous swimming of your life you can go and check it out on my YouTube channel Um, I think my suit has still got like all these like scrape holes all over the suit because there were these like grids of water the water was only about like probably 10 centimeters deep um <laughs> so um <laughs> it was uh i was actually still on blood thinners then as well all my ribs and everything was completely bruised because i'd forgotten that i was still on blood thinners so oh, i'd like scraped my chest and my ribs were like there was literally like bruise all the way down my chest <laughs> but it was it was it was good fun i think i needed to get that like i needed i'd gone there to do a triathlon so i'm like well you know if i can't do one then i'll just make one.
0: Next up, I've got a segment of my interview with Andy Blow from Precision Hydration. Um, We've always known the importance of electrolytes, staying hydrated, and also getting your fuel levels right for performance. The next level of this, something that can really add on that extra little bit of pizzazz for race day is caffeine intake. So we had Andy on to talk about the correct levels of getting caffeine into your system to really help optimize performance on race day
3: we we just knew like like you've already alluded to caffeine is one of the very few supplements which has got some proven science behind the fact that it is ergogenic it does it does help to improve performance in in the vast majority of athletes at least so for us hydration comprising sodium and fluid carbs for calories that's the that's the main three things you need when you're racing and you don't need caffeine but caffeine is that a valid kind of fourth component to to layer on a little bit more performance.
0: Yeah. 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 So in terms of, um, on a very, very basic level, everyone's going to have experienced having a strong cup of coffee in the morning or before they go out for a ride. It's obviously difficult to do that mid ride on race day. You can start for coffee and training, but you need to be looking elsewhere for it when you're, when you're actually racing. So talk us through, I mean, I've got, I'm going to hold my hands up here and it's going to be education for me as much as anything. I'm up on my grams of sodium. I'm up on my grams of carbs per hour. If an athlete asked how many milligrams of caffeine I needed, I wouldn't have a clue. I wouldn't know where to send them. So let's start talking that through to start with. Um, how many how many milligrams of caffeine are going to be something that people are going to feel an effect from?
3: Yeah, that, that, is, that is a crucial question. And you're not alone in that, Rob. I would say that the vast majority of athletes that we talk to literally have no idea how much. Mm. The- what what is an effective dose of caffeine and caffeine the dosages we can talk about them absolutely because that's what's written on packets but it's all it's important to realize that caffeine is one of those substances that is um, best recommended as a per unit of body weight so you tend to hear about terms like the the performance dose for caffeine is three to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight rather so it's relative to your to your body size because essentially a bigger person will metabolize a small amount of caffeine faster than a smaller person because they've got more metabolically active tissue in the body. Got yeah. And that that's why we talk about it in relative terms rather than absolute terms. It is useful to hang some absolute numbers on that though. And to give an example, I'm a I am the archetypal average size bloke, when it comes to endurance athletes, I'm about seventy kilograms, um, just over 150 pounds for the Americans, and um, for me, the the three milligrams per kilo dose is just over 200 milligrams. So that would be the equivalent of two of our caffeinated gels, basically. That's the kind of entry level when you start to to get a reasonable amount of caffeine in that's likely to affect your performance and you're likely to feel it. The, okay. on the in in terms of coffee cups of coffee it's really difficult to quantify and it's quite variable in one of the blogs that we've done we've linked to a table which is pretty good which has loads of different commercial coffee outlets and the kind of levels of caffeine that you get in there in the drinks it can vary a lot though a low dose of caffeine in a coffee might be 30 or 40 milligrams and a high dose might be 250 depending on the size and the type. right okay one thing that I learned whilst researching that actually was that the kind of cold brew coffees, which are becoming more popular, you know, the ones where they're really steeped and soaked, they can be really potent. So you could get okay. 280, 290 milligrams of, of caffeine from one of those compared with only, say, 70 or 80 from an espresso. So, so that, that
0: stuff's really, really yeah,
3: potent. Yeah. It can be pretty potent, yeah. So it's. I think a lot of us will use caffeine from coffee habitually every day you know certainly i think it's like 90 percent of the population consume caffeine in some way or another be it through you know tea and coffee soft drinks chocolate whatever um but you know using it as a quantifiable method to get your caffeine in isn't isn't quite as as accurate that being said so many of us have finely tuned our caffeine consumption on a morning because you do it every day you know you kind of know i know that i'm a two cups of coffee before the world gets going guy yeah before i feel human and can (laughs) approach approach other human beings yeah exactly so you kind of calibrate yourself don't you based on you know what what you know um some people my wife is an example of someone who's got very very low tolerance to caffeine she's virtually zero caffeine and then maybe if she's very, very tired, like when we were going through the mill with our kids being young, you know, up in the night all the time and stuff, I would see her have like a micro dose of caffeine in the morning, but that was all she needs. Cause it, it gives her, almost gives her the jitters. Yeah. Right? So there's that, there is that level of individual variance. And I would say when people ask, how do I know how much caffeine I can tolerate? You just have to ask yourself, you know, are you a heavy, are you someone who can be smashing coffees at, all morning and into the afternoon, or are you like me? Like I'm more of a moderate average guy. I'll have a couple in the morning, maybe a third one some of the time, but most of the time, that's me shutting it down for the day mm. then. So yeah. less than that.
0: Well, let's go over the, the effects it will have on people in terms of, we're, we're essentially talking about using this as a, as a legal performance enhancing substance at this point. It's going to be not something that you take every day, in terms of caffeinated gels it's going to be something that you take at a specific point in a workout or in a race to have a very specific effect so what have you seen with the research in terms of how people can what what benefits will they get from using it firstly
3: so mostly it's in the effect of suppressing feelings of fatigue and also if races are really long if you're doing ultra distance stuff going through the night or whatever suppressing the urge to sleep you know so actually pushing away tiredness Um, in in terms of most endurance activities if you if you break it down into sort of shorter endurance activities like triathlons that are lasting you know two three hours or whatever most of your caffeine if not all of it can come before the race because caffeine the thing people don't sometimes realize is that caffeine gets into your system reasonably slowly so like a gel if you take an energy gel the sugar will be in your bloodstream after about 15 minutes and a lot of it will be, it's absorbed relatively quickly with caffeine. You will start to see it showing in your blood after 15 minutes, but then it won't be fully absorbed until 45 to 60 minutes in with most people. So that's why a lot of the pre-caffeination before workouts and races is recommended to start 45 to 60 minutes ahead. Got it, yeah. That's when, so if you imagine a graph where it's the, the graph is peaking at, at that point, that's around the start time. And then the interesting thing is the, the, the downslope. So caffeine is gradually metabolized away by the body and it isn't metabolized as fast as it's absorbed. So it's not gone within 45, 60 minutes. It can still be hanging around in your system five or six hours later. Right. And, and they measure what's called the half-life of caffeine, which is like the time it takes to decay to half of its levels or half of its effectiveness. And that's often, you know, three, four hours for a lot of people so for that reason a lot of the time you'll see athletes you know, if they're doing it right you'll pre-caffeinate an hour or so 45 minutes before the start hit that lovely peak at the beginning and then it's just going to slope away gradually now there is an argument in longer races like that like in marathons we'll quite often we'll see people take a caffeine gel later on in the race the danger though and a common mistake is taking it too late Cause if yeah. you, you get to we're, we're all hurting at mile 23 of the marathon. If you bang a caffeine gel, then if you're even moving at a moderately good pace, you're going to be across the line before that really hits your system. So you want to be taking it 45 minutes at least before you, you expect
0: to be really fatigued. Oh, that's interesting actually, isn't it? Yeah. That thought that you'd need to take it at the the halfway point of a marathon for a three hour marathon runner so yeah. that it has its effect. In See, the last so three or four miles for you, exactly. so it's preemptive.
3: There is, and don't discount the placebo effect because the amount of people that tell me that when they have a caffeine gel, they immediately feel better. I mean, that's a thing. We know that the placebo effect in all sorts of ways is is a thing. But to to actually use it strategically, you want to be taking it. You know, if, it, I would say in a marathon, probably mile for most people, mile sixteen, seventeen. You know, that kind mm. of range, and then you're going to be really start, sort of like getting that second kick towards the end. Before yeah it fade away again um and so that's that short races longer races like iron man obviously there is this idea that the the caffeine that you took before the start if you took it an hour before the start it's probably going to have dissipated largely somewhere on the bike which is why you will see people topping up in different ways as the race goes on so some people will top up little and often like dripping caffeine in through the bike ride others will prefer to take one or two big hits um, you talk to different people you get different opinions on that and I I think we put 100 milligrams of caffeine in the gel that we've made which is a reasonably punchy dose in order to make it easier for people to take slightly higher doses less frequently rather than microdosing 30 or 40 milligrams in here and there but at the end of the day I don't I don't think that's a huge determinant of whether it works or not you just got to, mm. the important thing is working out roughly what dosage you might need and that's where that kind of three to six milligram is helpful but also starts to become less relevant because if you imagine that most of the caffeine is out of your system by halfway in the bike ride or towards the end of the bike ride then when you top up you're not effectively you're topping up to stay within those parameters rather than it being additive yeah. It doesn't seem to be particularly because we don't know the half-life for everyone. It's, and there's not a particularly elegant way of quantifying that, which is why when people read some of the case studies of our athletes, they might see, you know, we saw Fenella language at Roth the other day, I think taking eight or nine milligrams of, of caffeine per kilo of body weight through the race. Really? The pre-race, but that's, but she was out there for eight and a half hours. Yeah. So she, the caffeine she took later on would have been, Going over the top of stuff that had largely been metabolized away. She's also one of those people. There's a, there is a hu- huge variance in what people can tolerate when it comes to caffeine, and she's a very strong habitual coffee drinker. She she has always done well with caffeine in races, so we have no, you know, sort of hesitation in looking at her plan and signing that off if it's if it's got that that kind of level of caffeine in it.
0: Next up, we've got the story of Jan Siberson. Jan, many of you will know, he was he was one of the best swimmers in Ironman sport back around the the early two thousands, and he made a comeback. Back in 2017, 2018, he'd always tried to break the Kona swim course record as a younger man, and was really fired up to try and come back and break it in his in his early 40s, which is an amazing story in itself. So here's Jan Siberson talking about his quest to break the Ironman swim course record at Ironman Hawaii. And then I know that the Kona record, the Kona swim record, was something you were always hunting back in the day. Tell us about um, tell us about that quest. Oh for the viewers at home who can't see what your face just did it was a there's a proper head back and eye roll then
4: (laughs) (laughs) trust me when it when it i know i mean you know people people i think they know they try their entire life to qualify for kona and 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 some of most of them or a lot of them don't make it and then you know i'm complaining about not breaking the swim record in kona so you got to put things in perspective but you know if you then uh, you know and i and i thought i'd you know i'd do this kona record thing in the first on the first round right and you i showed up there uh, just a month after 911 that was 2001 and uh, and then with the experience of of the the fishing trip and uh, and then the water was a bit rough and then i ended up at 48 and change i think and the record back then uh was set by Lars Jurgensen in in 1995 and it was sitting at uh, 46 44 uh you know and then you know it's 3800 meters so 38 uh, it's 38 seconds is um is 1 second per 100 and then if you if you show up at 48 and change you know it's 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 2 seconds per 100 or so that you need to swim faster and 2 seconds per 100 for all of us uh, it's it's quite a bit right yeah uh, especially at that speed um so i was like oof, you know this is not so easy and uh, and then there was always the pros that would race in front of you, so I always had to swim through them. Um, so that held true for 2002 and 2003. Um, and then, obviously, huge component is is are the conditions in Kona. You know, if you is it is it what kind of tides uh, and especially waves. You know, if it's a wavy day, forget it. It's just mm. not happening, right? And, uh, you know, the, the one year when there was a storm and they wanted to call off the swim because there were three meter, ho- uh, three meter tall waves in the morning, uh, you kind of know it's pretty much impossible that you, that you can break it. Huh? But um, I had two occasions uh, in, I think it was 2002 and it also in 2004 when it looked good and uh, I went for it. And, uh, you know, you back then you you would get out of the water on the pier. In the in the in the back uh on the on the back side of the pier nowadays it's the front side of the pier when when you swim back but they had the they had the clock right up there so basically uh before you, a- you actually got on the ramp you could already see the time uh and one year you know i i look up and i and and i look up and i see 46 38 39 40 and i was like damn it. Right. And I'm, and I missed it by six seconds and, and, and I I swam a 4650. And, uh, and then two years later in, in, in 2004, it was, I missed it by 20 seconds. Uh, And I was like, fuck, you know, and then uh, didn't qualify in 2005. And eventually as I was like, okay, you know, this, maybe this is a dream that I have to give up on. Um, and then I started sailfish, and and then business comes along, and then you know there's a million things, and but in order to do something like that, you need to be a hundred percent prepared, right? And I kind of, I you know, I, I, it's easy, it's it's always easy to say afterwards that you know I kind of had given up on it, and now I came back and uh, and, uh, and 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 did it, but um, it was really in 2016 when i when uh, when i went back to kona um after like hadn't been there in 3 or 4 years and uh, to kind of see what it was like and i did a bit of tv work for german tv and i also i also wanted to look after this young kid um that that came from my town here uh, uh, called patrick lange uh who had his first uh, showing in kona and um and he he won ironman texas earlier at, and it was his very first ironman and and people said, you know, he, you know, it was only 150k on the bike because there was some flooding and they had to shorten the bike course. And yes, he ran a 240, but you know, let's see what it's worth in Kona, right? Yeah. So, um, but that looked promising, and and I remember that day in the, in the morning at the race start in uh, in 2016. When I had that feeling, was like, oh, wow, you know, I, this is this, you know—you get nervous and you're like, this is unfinished, unfinished business. And your gut tells you there's unfinished business there. Um, <clears throat> and I had a, a year before, I had a really bad kite surfing accident uh, in South Africa. And I actually had to get back into sports and I had to get back into the water. That's what the doctors told me. So it was it was and then Patrick actually out of nowhere uh, took third place and uh, I made the decision at the awards ceremony uh, in the 2016 at the 2016 Hawaii Ironman to come back here and to try to break that record again. Yeah. Yeah. So So that was that was the moment because at the awards you know in Kona, it's so emotional and they really they really push it into you, right? And yeah. I was like, And I was like, damn, you know, I just gotta do this one more time. And uh, it ended up being two more times in, in 2017 and in 2018. But um, yeah, it, uh, eventually it worked out. So you're in your
0: I'm gonna say you're, you're in your early 40s when you you come to, to a process. Is that right? age-wise yeah, yeah yeah
4: yeah i was um i was uh, in 2018
0: i was 43 43 years old yeah out of proper competitive sport for 20 years so it's a sort of 18 month mission to get yourself back into shape at what points in the training for this did you realize okay this is this is still on here and how much training had you been doing in the in-between how much i can see you still kept yourself in really good shape but how much training had you done in the intervening years
4: so I think, a very, yeah, very good question. I think um, number one, it was really helpful that I that I never did nothing. Yeah, I always tried to keep tried to stay in a, like a halfway decent shape, right? So I always I swam a bit here and there. I did a bit of this here and there. Obviously, a lot of kite surfing that doesn't really help you for for swimming, <laughs> but I always tried to stay to stay fit and in shape. That was really important and um and then looking back you know i i you know we are we're in october 2016 and i'm saying okay next year i want to break this record um it, it i should have known that it takes would, that it would take longer um <clears throat> but if you look at the record books um there is there's a guy by, by the name of Brad Weston and he had one of the fastest swim times in Kona as well he was also in the top 10 and when he did his uh, i think he was like third or fourth um swim he was also he was 41 years old so i and i, I still felt you know um especially in swimming i don't think in, in cycling or in running you can you can get these performances done at at that at that late age but um I, especially in swimming i felt i could still pull it off uh, but I should have realized from the very beginning that this is not a one-year project, but a two-year project to kind of get back there. And to answer your question, when was the first time that I really thought this could actually happen? Very, very, very late. You know, I always <laughs> I always believed that, I, that it could be done. Yeah. But, but the training results, they were never there. Like i know i knew what i swam in the in in the past and i knew what i could do in the pool and and all this kind of stuff but i knew i knew i have to swim a 111 per 100 38 times without a break and then if you train and you do 400s and you end up doing 400s at five minutes at the 115 pace you're like damn you know i'm still four seconds off per hundred and, uh, and and in those four, this those five minutes uh, on the 400s, they are not that easy. And then you're like, damn, this is this is a long way. So I did I did a final, um, I did a couple of training camps, and I decided, actually, in uh, in 2018, when I all put it on one card, and I had the I had the slot for Kona. Starting in June, um, I only trained swimming. And I swam uh, five to six times a week, but I but I rode I rode the bike twice a month, and I ran once a week. So I ran uh, 10k a week. So I ran 40k a month, and I rode like 180 to 200k a month. So that's that's really the, all the training that I did in the other two disciplines going into Kona, and the rest was all swimming. Yeah. And uh, it really came together, I would say, in August, September, so about six to eight weeks uh, out of Kona when I did my final training camp in Lanzarote. And and then I felt like, OK, now, you know, it feels like swimming again and it feels like I'm being on top of the water and I'm not in the water. And you, it's, it's a whole different it, you know, I think only swimmers can relate to that. Uh, it's a whole different ball game once you start like, uh, like a hovercraft. You know, you you kind of like lie on top of the water, and then it it becomes efficient and it becomes a lot faster. and uh, And I did a final test three weeks before Kona, and I swam a three thousand for time. And that that three thousand for time in the pool that was at a one eleven average. And then I knew, okay, if it was a good day in Kona, um, I could translate that into open water. So, so my confidence level went up a lot those three weeks out. Um, And then, you know, I just have to keep it together and bring it on, bring and basically bring it on the day. Yeah. To the day. Okay. I'll talk us through race
0: day then. Talk us through the event itself.
4: you know, the the first thing, obviously, uh, well, you you get up at whatever, two thirty, three 3 o'clock, super, super early. And we had a mini pool at the house that we rented. And uh, I actually got into a wetsuit, and the pool is like 10 meters. So basically, you push off, you do one or two <laughs> laps. And I think I did like 100 laps at 3 a.m. in the morning in a wetsuit, but really just to warm up. And the good thing about a wetsuit is even in a place like Hawaii, you know you you heat up and you warm up um very very nicely and very quickly right um so so that was my that was my plan and uh um <clears throat> yeah and then you you know breakfast and you get ready you go down uh you do your last final preparations um i don't have a scale so so they you know they weigh you in hawaii so when you when you before you race so i finally went on the scale and i was like Damn, I'm freaking heavy. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm like, oh, let's not think about that because it doesn't matter on the swim. It, it'll haunt me or it'll hurt me uh, later on in the day. Um, so, but I, and then the first thing you check really is, you know, what is the ocean like? Is it, uh, is it calm or is it not calm? And the ocean was super calm and I was super excited. And I always check the tides um, and in Kona. And that was also, I mean, it's just you know luck. Um, the the hour between between seven and eight o'clock, it was slack tide, so there was there was nothing moving in or moving out. Um, which you know, I I know what it feels like when the tide moves in heavily, and I think or moves out, which happens actually not more often, but the times I raised Hawaii. Uh, an out-moving tide means you're you're out at the at the halfway point super quick, and then you turn around, and then you're like, "What the hell is going on?" <laughs> like, I'm standing here it's, and I'm not moving anywhere. Um, so so I knew it was going to be very even on going out and going in. For the first time ever um, in Kona, I did not wear a watch on the swim. So, uh, cause I was like, okay, you know, I kind of, it, it'll distract only. And, um, and, and I didn't want that. And then of course, um, it was the last year also, again, super lucky with a mass start. So it wasn't, it wasn't age group waves. And I would have, you know, the year after you have to, if you swim, if you have to swim through a hundred people, forget it. No, yeah. there's no way you can do it. Uh, so it was the last year with a, with an age group mass, uh, mass start. and. Uh, yeah, I still remember it being in the water and then there were some Frenchmen who were like pushing me back. And so I, I actually dove down and dove over ten, 10 or 20 meters just to be at a different point, starting point. And I had, uh, I got away really well, um, was pretty much clear. And when I say clear, like nobody on my feet uh, after like uh, 100 or 150 meters. And I think that's really the the, I mean, the most important part is um, if you catch too much lactate in the beginning on this of the swim, it it'll it'll just hurt you a lot uh on, on the end of the swim. So it was really, how do I get away from the pack without without burning too much energy or without getting without building up too much lactate in the beginning. And that worked out super well, and so basically, after three four hundred meters into the swim, I really like calmed down and went uh, and tried to get it as efficient as possible, and I divided the swim into four four pieces or four parts, um, basically four times one kilometer, and uh, oh, and that's exactly how um, how it developed. You know, the first the first part was easy, the second part like mildly, you could feel it. Then you turn around um, and then it's getting hard. And then the last, uh, the last 800 meters or so that's when the waves pick up because there's so many boats and um, that's when you have, uh, you know, it's uh, when you get really tired. Right. Um, And that's really when I went, when I went all, all out, like I was completely blue when I got out of the water and I had no idea. And I just jumped out and I saw the clock and, Boom, 15 seconds under. And it was wow. truly the best, the best sporting moment of my life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's that's amazing, man. Congratulations to <laughs> to chase that for 20, 20 something years and finally get it in your early 40s. That's that's yeah. absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. And then you've got to go through the whole recovery get on your bike, the small, the small mission of completing Hawaii <laughs> <I'm not laughs> yeah. to yeah. make yeah. it count,
4: yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So so first um actually at first i took uh, i think i took about two minutes or so in the change tent i mean at, at that point i had time and then there was uh, andrew messick the ceo of ironman he was he was actually standing right there and he said jan congratulations amazing but make sure you finish it because only then it counts i said yeah you know, andrew i know i know and i'll, I'll do so and uh yeah, I'm, uh, I, again, very, very lucky. It was, I think, one of the easiest days on the bike out there. There was hardly any wind um, because that could have had easily added an hour to, uh, to the time. Uh, but, you know, when, whenever it was, it got hard, I just thought about, God, you know, Jan, you just, you broke the record and it puts a smile on your face and it, it carries you through the entire day. It really did. Uh, so I had one little down... Uh, one little uh, yeah, uh, tough moment on the run uh, where I kind of like walked for half a kilometer or so, cause it was just really low on energy. Uh, but uh, yeah, I brought it, I brought it in to the finish line at 10, 10, 25 or so. And uh, I, not only did I break the swim record, I also, I think I broke another record in that race, but and that it's, I think I was the guy or the, the athlete who was passed the most, <laughs> times, <laughs> I think there was. I don't know what I finished at. Uh, maybe like one thousand four hundred or one thousand five hundred. But I, you know, I don't think anybody has been, had got got passed more than I did in that oh, race. Oh, God bless you. <laughs> uh, do you know it, it's so sad?
0: I've I've got a really good buddy who I started triathlon with. Who was a really really good swimmer, and we would finish our races in about the same time. When we get to the finish, and I'd be like, "That was awesome," and he would go, "That was that was horrendous." I've been passed by. You know, I was a terrible swimmer and would pass people all through the bike and the run. And we'd finish at the same time, but our experiences were so different. So I, I really feel for you after years of my, my buddy Simon saying to me, I've been passed by hundreds of people on the bike. It's,
4: it, there is it's just hard, downside. man. There's just downside for a good swimmer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Next up, we've got a great little clip of an interview with young Daniel Dixon. A lot of you will have seen Dan this summer racing for England at the Commonwealth Games. Um, Dan burst onto the scene earlier in the year and was a character I'd been made aware of after meeting him four years ago or so when he won the junior race out at Super League Malta. So it was great to see him sort of start to progress into the senior ranks earlier this year obviously we saw him go on to be incredibly successful and race for England and be picked for the Commonwealth Games team but this is him from right back at the very start of the year in January when he was just starting to get some real success on the senior scene.
5: Yeah um, so today I'm in Portugal. Uh, I just flew out last night to uh, a place called Villamora. Um, so yeah it's rather nice it's a little bit warmer than home um yeah i'm just glad to be settled again as it's been a pretty tough last few days we've traveled
0: i bet it has yeah so listen i think the place to kick this off is i want to give you a chance to tell your your full story about how you got into triathlon and where you're at but let's start with let's start with this last weekend you've You've hit the headlines this weekend for finishing third in the America's Cup race in Sarasota behind none other than Richard Murray and Olympic silver medalist Kevin McDowell. So storming race for you in a really great way to break through on the on the senior scene. Um, How did that race go for you? From what I've read about it, there was there was all kinds of weather challenges going on there as well on the day, wasn't there?
5: Yeah. um, So we had all sorts going on. there was tornado warnings on the uh, Saturday, so that kind of led to the race being cancelled. Um, not something <laughs> I've ever had to deal with at home, I must say. Um, <laughs> and we didn't, <laughs> we didn't know what was going to happen, really. Um, you know, we most athletes had flights out of there on the uh, Sunday, so the race organisers kind of were up in the air in terms of, like, you know, can we get one on, can we not? Um, and actually much to their credit, they managed to get one on, on a Sunday morning, which was absolutely brilliant of them. Um, but due to the, you know, the timings of the next day of the age group races, it actually got shortened to a super sprint. Um, so that, that definitely changed things up and it's a very, very different race and format to, to race on a sprint because it's just so much quicker and there's obviously less chance for mistakes. But I wasn't really too bothered. I was happy that I could do it and still make my flight at the same time, to be honest. Um, and then, uh, yeah, God, we turned up on the morning and, you know, it's five degrees, it's raining, it's cold, and it was just like polar opposite to the 30 degrees plus that we'd had the days before. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. You know, that changing the junior races into duathlons. They're saying yours might be cancelled. Like, it was just an absolute nightmare. Um and then they told us basically twenty minutes before the race that it was going to go ahead, and that they decided it was going to be a triathlon, but we weren't going to have a swim warm up or anything, and it was also going to start in twenty minutes. And we were like, <laughs> a bit like, what the heck? Like we hadn't, we hadn't put our bikes in or anything, so we we just had this absolutely almighty rush to get everything into transition, and you know, obviously straight into the wetsuits, and then you know, ready to go on the pontoon. But yeah, it, it was all a big, big rush, but. In, in all honesty, like I was really, really glad just to be getting a race and it, it kind of reminded me of the COVID days of, you know, things getting cancelled last minute and stuff. But that, that was a bit that was a bit different, the fact that it was like, you know, the day before and then obviously ten minutes before you don't even know if you're gonna be racing duathlon or Triathlon. But um yeah, in the end it worked out quite well and I was rather happy with the, with the result.
0: Yeah, so you obviously you're racing there in some great company. Um, from what I read, you you led the swim out by quite a gap as well. I think you had five or six seconds out of the water, which which over 400 meters is a is a nice little gap. And then you managed to ride with the lead pack the whole way around, and it turned into a foot race. So first up, what was your like? What was your mindset going into this sort of first really big, really big senior race? And there's names like you know we already mentioned there's Richard Murray's racing there, Kevin McDowell's racing there. What was your what was your mindset lining up with guys like this?
5: Um, <laughs> I mean, I was relatively confident. Actually, I think I'd say quietly confident. Um, the previous week, we raced in Claremont Draft Legal Challenge, uh, and that was kind of my first race of the season. It was just it's kind of like an American elite race, and I won there, and I felt fantastic. And obviously, it was a nice little blowout before going into that weekend. So, I guess that got the kind of first race of the season nerves out the way but that really really helped going into Sarasota and I think even with all the changes I've it didn't phase me too much to be honest with you um whereas I think with some people it certainly did but I mean yeah by the time we actually knew that we were going to get to race and you know it was going to be a triathlon I was really really confident it was the same distance as I'd done this you know the weekend before I knew I was fit I'd been training in the in the states for six and a half weeks and you Know the main goal for me there was just to make a statement like that, that was the main goal. And you know, I think I did a reasonable job of that. There's still work to be done, but um, yeah, it was awesome to go and race against guys like Kevin and Richard because previously I'd only seen them on the TV, so it was um, yeah, it was pretty special.
0: Yeah, that's that's great, and and it says a lot about you as an athlete as well, and that. Uh... It's one thing to think you can you can maybe race against these guys and and think how you might feel when you race against these guys, but actually, I mean, my experience is meeting these guys and interviewing them, and there's been times when I've been completely starstruck just talking to somebody on microphone. So I'd imagine it. Yeah. it it's only when you get to race them you find out what your actual what your actual mindset is when you're racing these guys. So it looks like that worked out well for you.
5: Yeah, I mean, I guess leading the race to start with, like, give me it give me confidence. Um but I felt very much in control uh for a huge kind of proportion of the race. Um but yeah, I mean I guess, you know, I think maybe when I was younger you you might be that kind of star stroke when you see these, you know, these guys that you've only seen on T V and suddenly you're racing with them. But to be honest with you, like I said, I, I really wanted to make a statement and just you know, prove that I can, can be up there at the front end as a senior and I'm, you know, no longer a junior anymore. And I think, you know, I certainly made a good job of that. And I didn't really want to give either of them an inch, you know, um, yeah. but obviously, obviously in the end they got away, but you know, that is why the, you know, truly world-class guys. And there's definitely, like I say, a bit of work to be done, but you know, the, it's definitely pretty motivating knowing that I can be up the front of a race with, you know, with guys of that caliber. Um and obviously, so early on in the season as well, it's it's certainly a huge motivation as I go forward.
0: And next up, we managed to get Ironman Group CEO Andrew Messick onto the show, um, talking about the well, the controversy really surrounding the announcement that Ironman Hawaii was going to be in two split venues in the coming year. Um, he came on, and I thought he talked he talked very well and very interestingly. We had an awful lot of comments from people after this interview. Some saying you know, well done, you asked some tough questions. Some saying you didn't ask tough enough questions. Sometimes I think that's the mark of a good interview and it's produced some controversy in the listeners. But Andrew came on and I thought he was very honest about the reasons that they'd made the decisions that they had done. I think he was very open and honest about them having wanted to keep Hawaii, where it was. He went on to discuss the future of Iron Man and where he sees Iron Man as a brand going over the next five years. And I was really touched by some of the things he said here. So I thought this was a a nice way to wrap up this episode. Where do you see Iron Man being in five years if everything goes to plan?
6: So I th- I think, I mean, what what we're trying to do is pretty. I mean, there's no sort of magic thing we're trying to do. Um, I think there's a bunch of us in this company who are real true believers and, and who like me, you know, I did my first Ironman in 2005 and the process of doing it changed my life. And, and, you know, and, and so I'm, you know, exhibit a of the people who like have the crazy passionate belief in how Iron Man can make you better, you know, better in everything. And and it can expand your horizons and you know show you that link between effort and reward that we spend our lives trying to teach our children. And and that, you know, it, it's this unambiguous force for good and our culture of athletes you know you go to a, you go to, to a world championship and you know everybody's the same you know d- different genders different colors different ages from different parts of the world but there's this incredible positive spirit this positivity this you want to help the other guy you you know you're competing against people but you're really not competing because you're all fellow travelers in this incredible amazing adventure that changes you and changes your life. And, and like we're trying to spread that around the world. Like that's our secret business strategy. Like we're trying to spread to every single part of the world. um, Because for so many of us, it's been this amazingly important part of our lives. And, and so, yeah, I'm trying to get more women involved in the sport. I'm trying to get more people from every corner of the globe involved in the sport i'm trying to get more young people i'm trying to get more old people i'm trying to get more more everybody and 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 that's really what animates us more than anything and you know gives us the energy to like do this crazy job which and it is a crazy job right like the event business is just Preposterously difficult. I mean, all you do—you spend your whole life dealing with stuff going wrong. There's a hurricane. There's a mudslide. There, a bridge collapses. You know, you've got like um, like we're an outdoor event business. You think of everything that can go wrong outdoors. It's a long list. Um, and you know, and you and you work. You pull twenty-hour days, like at events, and. But it's awesome. You get to watch people cross the finish line, and that makes everything worth it. Um so, like more of that. And awesome. and and, and I, I think also, you know, one of the things that we've historically been is really focused on like being an event delivery company. And and, and we do that, I think, really well. We deliver safe high quality racing experiences for athletes around the world. And we do this in mountain biking and in running and in triathlon and and, and, and everywhere where we compete. Um, But I I think we've got an opportunity to be more helpful to our athletes because as, as, you know, one of the things that that everybody, you know, in the Ironman world knows is that like Ironman athletes care a lot about you know, whatever their upcoming race is, being a hundred percent ready and having the right equipment and being optimally prepared and the right nutrition and the right everything, and and we've never really been that involved in a, an awful lot of that. You know, we've really said, all right, from when they arrive on Wednesday to when they leave on Monday morning, like that's where we're going to put our effort and we're you know in creating like that great experience. But I think there's more that we can do in in helping people get to the start line um, sort of as healthy and as prepared and confident as, as possible. So I, I think you'll probably see us do more in that area in, in the future. Fantastic.
0: Hey, well, listen, thank you very much for your time. I'm I'm very conscious we've run over here. So uh, how would you like to wrap this up? Is there anything else that you'd like to pass on to the listeners?
6: Well, um, we're excited about 2023. And, and uh, we're excited, you know, a lot of our attention has been thinking about world championships. But, you know, we've got uh, 70.3 worlds are taking place in Finland in August. And then uh, we've got two days and two venues of world championships. And we, we hope to see a lot of the the community there. And uh, we'll be we'll be ready.
0: Okay, and there we go. That brings us to the end of this part one. In part two, I'll be bringing you some of my favourite age group interviews from 2022. Um, hope that you all have a fantastic, safe, happy, restful, enjoyable holiday season with your families. Join us next week. We'll have a review of our favourite age group interviews of the year. And hope you all have a fantastic, restful holiday and Christmas. Um, just remember, you can use the code OA22 at checkout at precisionfuelandhydration.com if you want to pick yourself up 15% of your first order of electrolytes and carbohydrate fuel. And also, if you're looking for coaching for next year, check us out over at teamoxygenic.com. I think we've got the most comprehensive endurance sports coaching program for busy age groupers for triathlon, ultra running, duathlon, aquabike, running, marathon, cycling, sportives, gravel, ultra swim, swim runs, you name it book a call with me for the new year to see if you'd be a good fit for joining the team and we'd love to see how we can best help you achieve your endurance event goals in 2023 right everybody have a have a great day i've been coach rob wilby and you've been listening to the oxygen addict podcast take good care see ya